0: And you have to always be leaning into the future. If you're you're leaning away from the future, the future is gonna win every time.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go, I'm Trisha Johnson. On today's show, Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon. The tech entrepreneur was a featured speaker at Vanity Fair's new establishment summit in October. It's produced in association with the Aspen Institute. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly podcast that features compelling talks from events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Jeff Bezos says Amazon began as a company of 10. Now it's one of the world's largest retailers. In this episode, he talks about what today's companies need in a fast-paced, high-tech business environment. Alexa is Amazon's new voice-controlled virtual assistant. Bezos explains how it's different from Apple's Siri. And the billionaire discusses other ventures, including his purchase of the Washington Post and the aerospace company he created called Blue Origin. Also on the show today, a talk from the Vanity Fair Summit called When Bad Things Happen to Good Ideas. It features Steve Case and Glenn Hubbard. Case co-founded AOL and now runs Revolution, an investment firm based in Washington, D.C., Hubbard is Dean of the Columbia Business School. They talk with Aspen Institute CEO Walter Isaacson about people, culture, frustrations, and trust within business. First, Isaacson interviews Jeff Bezos. Bezos begins with some advice.
0: The thing for companies is you need to be nimble and robust, so you need to be able to take a punch uh, and you also need to be quick and, 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 and innovative and, and doing new things at a high speed. That's, that's the best defense against the future. And you have to always be leaning into the future. If you're, if you're leaning away from the future, the future is gonna win every time. Never, ever, ever lean away from the future. You talk
2: though about 1999 and the um, person of the year. When Jim Kelly and myself and others at the time chose you as person of the year, I remember the internet bubble was beginning to look like it might burst that November of 1999. Yeah. I went up to uh, Don Logan, who was in the President of Time Inc, somebody you know, above us all, and I said, look, I'm a little bit worried. We're about to do Jeff Bezos. It's an internet company. Yeah. You know, Tell me what you think. And he said, Jeff Bezos is not in the internet business. He's in the customer service yeah. business. That's right. You don't have to worry. Yeah. Um, how did you get that focus on customer
0: service rather than on being an internet company? I don't know. I think um, we have always had, and it's been from the very, very beginning. You can go back and read our 1997 shareholder letter. Uh, and the the core of the company is customer obsession as opposed to competitor obsession. And that works really well for us. It's a, uh, I think that the advantage of being customer focused is that customers are always dissatisfied. They always want more, and so they pull you along. If you're trying to serve them, they pull you along. Um, whereas if you're competitor-obsessed, if you're a leader, if you're the leader, you, know, you can kind of look around and you see everybody running behind you, maybe you slow down a little. Mm-hmm. And customers are always pulling you. Uh, so I think if you want to be pioneering, if you want to be inventive, uh, if you want a culture that is experimental, then you want to be customer obsessed rather than competitor obsessed.
2: Now, how does something like Alexa, the Amazon yeah. Echo, fit into being customer obsessed?
0: Well, it's about, tr- definitely about leaning into the future. Um, and so uh, when you look at the kinds of things that you want to be able to do with your voice, uh, you know, it, it changes, for, for those of you who have used an Echo, the fact that it's always on uh, that you never have to charge it. It's always sitting there ready in your kitchen or your bedroom or wherever you put it. The fact that you can talk to it in, uh, in a natural way removes a lot of barriers, a lot of friction, a lot of like little tiny uh, pieces of friction to be able to do things, to ask what the weather is. It's easier than taking your phone out of your pocket. Mm-hmm. And what what has what people have found over and over again is that by removing the tiniest amounts of friction from ordinary activities really people appreciate that and and it improves customers lives and does it learn yeah no it's always learning you know the brains of alexa are in the cloud they're not on that little device so that's why the device is actually uh, as a physical device relatively simple it's a speaker it has seven microphones it has enough digital signal processing power on board to be able to do beam forming find your voice uh acknowledge the wake word the wake word is alexa uh, and then it starts listening, and then it sends that phrase to the cloud, where we can do really int- compute-intensive processing on it. Wait, wait. Here's a real paranoid question because you just said yep. Alexa's the wake word. Does it listen
2: if I don't say Alexa? No.
0: And it it listens just for that word, and that's why we do the wake word detection locally on board the device. So if I talk about toothpaste a lot, but
2: haven't said Alexa, it's not like Amazon's learning that I'm interested no, in toothpaste. No, no, not at all.
0: And in fact, you know, the uh, you guys should, you know. We, we, one of the great issues of our age is going to be privacy uh, and uh, you know people don 't think about it but if you have a mobile phone in your pocket it has microphones on it and those microphones are under software control mm-hmm. and I would posit to you that just about any nation state in the world worth its salt can put a computer virus on your phone anytime they want and listen to everything you say from your cell phone. And
2: how do you prevent that from happening to Echo? Meaning?
0: Well, we've done something a little unusual with Echo um, because we were thinking about that very thing. And we, First of all, we know different from your phone, but we actually went one step further than what's done on a phone. When you hit the mute button on Echo, that red ring comes on that says that the microphone is turned off. That mute button is connected to the microphone with analog electronics, oh. so it actually cannot be... Route it. You can't, you'd have to come physically tamper with the device. You couldn't do it with a computer virus.
2: And so um, it learns, and that got you into the artificial intelligence world, machine learning world, so that you could uh, take we've been the in, cloud computing. And- we've been
0: in the machine learning world for a long time. Um, you know, the uh, machine learning. Uh, you know, is I think we're. It's one of the things we live in a very interesting time because there are a few golden ages happening, and one of them is machine learning. Uh, you know, it's kind of specialized AI, and it's uh, you can. We're doing everything with it. We're grading strawberries with it. Uh, um, you know, for Amazon Fresh, where we, cameras look at the strawberries, and we can now outperform humans mm-hmm. on strawberry grading. So, like, that's just. I gave you that tiny example to show you that artificial intelligence and machine vision and natural language understanding, these kinds of amazing things that just ten years ago were science fiction are gonna be very helpful in ev- everywhere. You bought the Washington
2: Post, and at least the myth is, you did
0: it almost on a handshake without a whole lot of That's due not. A, that is not a myth. I did zero due diligence. Oh. I did not negotiate. I um, accepted the I asking. I'd love to sell you. I accepted yes. the asking price. Yeah. I, it wouldn't have happened that way. It couldn't have happened that way, except for the person that I was dealing with was Don Graham, who I've known for 15 years and who is the most honorable uh, person uh, in the world. And so, you know, we had several conversations and he laid out every single wart and every single uh, thing that was great about the post. And uh, the only thing I would say, and no due diligence would have ever uncovered the things that Don just told me, number one. And number two, uh, I've owned the paper for a couple of years now, and if anything, uh, you know, the, the, the warts are not as bad as he made them out to be, and the, uh, the, the, the things that are great about the post are stronger than he made them out to be. So I, how could I have ever have duplicated that with some kind of due diligence process? And you've, over the past
2: two years, talked about an emerging view of what a business model could be. Give me some of the thoughts of what a business model for the Washington Post could be in the next five years.
0: I think it's very, very simple um, what we have to do at the Post from a business point of view. First of all, what makes the Post great is not our business model. What makes the Post great is the tradition of investigative journalism and all the things that they have in the newsroom. I think the newsroom of the Post is absolutely killing it. I'm incredibly proud of that team. Marty Baron, in my opinion, is the best executive editor of any newspaper anywhere in the world and uh, and the post has they're that the culture at the post is very unusual because they're they, and they, they have a, a they're kind of swashbuckling but they're like professional swashbucklers and they uh, which is you don't want just swashbuckling you know without professionalism swashbuckling just gets you killed <laughs> and but there are they are um, they have a, a swagger uh, that's that is very very uh, uh, useful and lets them you know uh, dig How into things. How do you things, know that? Do things. you hang in the newsroom? It, uh, no, I don't. Well, I, occasionally I do, but I, hang would give you the wrong sense. I'm not there very often. I I have a uh, I have a day job which I love. I tap dance into Amazon. I live on the other side of the country, literally. I call Washington D.C. the other Washington, um, and so it's it, it's a um, it's not practical for me to be there all the time. Um, but I, for example, I, I started to get a sense, a very powerful sense of it, uh, when I went to uh, Ben Bradley's funeral. So there are, there, there, there's a long tradition of the post of, this, of, of, of just putting a lot of shoe leather into things and, and, and finding stories that nobody else can find. And the post is very lucky because it is physically located in the capital city of the most important country in the world. And uh, as a result, they have lots of contacts and lots of opportunities because of that physical location. And you've
2: basically tied The New York Times yeah. on digital. And perhaps with your uh, tape of uh, Donald Trump and Billy Bush that's probably not counted in yet, that'll take you way ahead of The New York yeah.
0: Times. Yeah. How do you monetize that? The politics team, The Post, is just doing a great job this year. And, and uh, I'm super proud of them. The, um, here's what bi- from Back to the business question. Um, And I don't know that this approach is accessible to all newspapers, but I'm very confident it is an approach that will work for the Post. What we need to do is we need to move from making a relatively large amount of money per reader Mm -hmm. on a relatively small number of readers. Mm -hmm. That was the traditional Post model for decades. Very successful model, by the way. Um, uh, And we need to move from that to a model where we make a very small amount of money per reader on a much, much larger number of readers.
2: Does and that so, uh, require micro micropayments or small payments? I don't
0: think and, so. I think we can do it with an, a combination of a subscription model and an ad model. We'll see. But, but why I'd wouldn't be open you do to small payments? payments. I, I'd be very interested in mean, it. In the, 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 in the, the Amazon I, world, too, don't you would want see, evidence yet, but these things can change. I don't see evidence yet that consumers are amenable to those kinds of micropayments, but uh, but we've seen this change. You know, in the early days of music subscription service, mm-hmm. consumers were not amenable to music subscriptions. They didn't want that. They wanted to buy music a la carte. Today, that's flipped around, and so uh, habits and behaviors and patterns of consumers do change slowly over time, and maybe one day they will pay by the And
2: you keep drink Amazon and the Post separate, but yeah. in your mind there would be a connection between, all right, we should enable really frictionless 10, 15, 20 cent payments. That could be done through Amazon, also through the Washington yeah. Post. Yeah. Do you ever see a world in which we're going to have those type of, let me buy the paper today for 10 cents as opposed
0: to subscribe? I, I again, I think, you know, it's possible. I'm I'm currently a little skeptical about that. I think there's so much advertising-supported news out there mm-hmm. that that it's it maybe difficult to get people to pay ten cents.
2: Get back to the shoe leather at the very beginning of um, this campaign. I think Bob Woodward talked yeah. a little bit about it, too. You decided to throw the kitchen sink and everything to a book on Donald Trump. Um, how involved were you in that decision?
0: Zero. That, that was Marty that's and- Marty Baron's decision. I, don't, I do not uh, introduce myself in any way into the daily activities of the newsroom. And my view on that would be, it would be a little bit like, um, I don't know, let's say one of your children had to have a you know, an operation on their brain. Mm. Would you go into the operating theater and tell the neurosurgeon what to do? This is a highly professionalized activity, and we have people who have decades of experience doing it. Um, and so, I, I, I help or try to help at a much higher level than. Uh, then, then you know, how, should we do? Should we cover this story or that story? Or well, one uh, person who doesn't and, know. And by that. the way, Marty got, Marty and his team. By the way, Marty just has an, an awesome team. They have good taste in these matters. Right. That's really, that's we that's were critical. Lucky with Marty. Incredibly lucky. And then, again, I did not hire Marty. Marty was there already. When and again, it's one of the things that Don Graham told me was great about the paper, and he was right. Same thing with Fred Hyatt, or, who leads the editorial pages. Uh, Fred Ryan, who's the publisher, um, who's just a great team, Shy Lesh, who runs technology, mm-hmm. killer team. But one person who doesn't understand that you don't order up stories
2: like that is Donald Trump. He's true, attacked you true. very, very personally, that is true. and then you've had to answer in the newsroom, or at least in discussions with Washington Post people, how do you respond to those attacks? And what do you well, think of Donald Trump? Or so doing it? you know
0: he's done it a couple of times uh, with me. He's done it with many people. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, unique. Carlos- I'm not, I'm not unique by any means. But, but, uh, you know, m- when he did it the first time, my instinct was to take it very lightly. And in, in fact, I did take it lightly. I sent a uh, what I thought was a humorous tweet um, or that had you know hashtag send Donald to space uh, yeah, as the hey. final thing in the hashtag. And, you know, I have a rocket company, so I, you know, the, the, the capability is there. And um, and that was my, my initial uh, kind of take on this. And then, but the more I thought about it, um, I should not, that was a mistake. I should not have taken it lightly because, it, it, you know, we live in an amazing country where one of the things that makes this country is, so, as amazing as it is is that we are allowed to criticize and scrutinize our elected leaders. And there are other countries where, if you criticize the elected leader, you might go to jail, or worse, you may just disappear. And uh, that, that uh, in, uh, the appropriate thing for a presidential candidate to do is to say, I am running for the highest office in the most important country in the world Please scrutinize me, mm-hmm. please scrutinize me. And that would, by the way, signal great confidence. It would be a leader thing to do. Uh, and uh, you know, that's not what we've seen. And, and to try and chill the media um, and, uh, and, and sort of threaten retribution, retaliation, which is what he's done in a number of cases um, for, uh, for certain you know, people involved in the media, it just isn't, it isn't appropriate. We have, we have freedom of speech in this country. It's written into the Constitution. But the Constitution, except for our norms and our behaviors, the stories we tell ourselves as a nation about who we are, it's just a piece of paper. There are a bunch of nations that have written constitutions that they don't pay any attention to. People still disappear. And you think
2: that Donald Trump has crossed the line
0: on the norm to be dangerous. He's eroding, on issues like that, he is eroding. I don't know how dangerous it is because I think the United States is incredibly robust. We have, you know, we're not a new democracy. We're very robust, but it is, you know, it is inappropriate for a presidential candidate to erode that around the edges. They should be trying to burnish it instead of erode it. And, um, and, and when you look at the pattern of things, it's not just, um, going after the media and you know uh, uh, trying to threatening retribution for people who scrutinize him, it is also um, you know saying that uh, he m- uh, may not give a graceful concession speech if he loses the election. Uh, that erodes uh, the, our our democracy around the edges. Uh, uh, you know saying that he might lock up his opponent if he wins it erodes our democracy around the edges. These aren't acceptable behaviors, my opinion.
2: Well, thank you. And by the way, before we move on, I want to thank you in terms of the Washington Post, which has really hit it out of the park this year when it comes to political coverage. Thank, thank you. you. Thank
0: Even you. if Marty deserves the credit, he does I'm going to applaud you. He does. I will accept that compliment on behalf of the amazing team.
1: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Today's episode features Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos in conversation with Aspen Institute President Walter Isaacson.
2: Going back to artificial intelligence, suppose I had Alexa and Siri yeah. sitting right here. Um, which one, uh, what's the difference between the way they learn,
0: the algorithms they use? Well, I don't know a lot about the internal uh, operations of Siri, so it's hard for me to answer that. Um, you know, uh, Alexa is uh, uses the uh, technique called deep learning that a lot of the, a lot of the uh, uh, new machine learning systems are using deep learning at least as one element of what they're doing. Uh, and, and she's continuously learning uh, as she interacts with you, getting better, trying to understand um, uh, not only your speech patterns, but also the kinds of things that you're interested in. Uh, things as simple as music, but more complicated things too.
2: Well, when I look at what you're doing in AI, Cloud, machine learning, space, whatever—it makes it seem like you're more of a science geek than a entrep- You know, just a pure entrepreneur. Uh, I'm going to play biographer for just a little bit. Um, growing up, yeah. and I know how wonderful your parents are, Jackie yes. and Mike. What was it that caught on to science? What what gave you this uh, background?
0: You know, I don't know. Um, you don't get to choose your passions. Your passions choose you. I. Uh, watched Neil Armstrong step onto the moon when I was five years old, uh, had a huge impact on me. And um, I read you know, hundreds of science fiction novels by the time I was 12 or 13. Uh, I always liked science and math. Uh, went to Princeton to study physics and switching to computer science.
2: But did you have a grandfather or a mother?
0: Or I had, you know, one of the. You win a lot of lotteries in life, and you lose some lotteries in life. And one of the great lotteries that I won was role models. And uh, my uh, mom, who you know, you know my parents. uh, My mom had me when she was seventeen years old. Uh, She was pregnant in 1963 in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in high school, and which was not cool. Um, And uh, and the principal tried to kick her out of school and. And uh, my grandfather, we called him we met Pop, mm-hmm. he went to uh, bat for her and met with the principal and said, look, you, you can't kick her out of school. She's allowed to finish school. And the principal cut a deal with him. He said, well, she can stay and finish high school, but she can't have a locker and she can't do any extracurricular activities. My grandfather, being a very wise man, was like, done, that'll work. <laughs> <laughs> so... It- uh, and so you know, my dad is a, a Cuban immigrant. Uh, came over uh, part of Operation Pedro Pan right after Castro took over. Two weeks in Everglades refugee camp. Picked up by a Catholic mission with 15 other Cuban boys. Um, the Catholic Church took great care of, of him. And so they both had their own remarkable lives. And uh, but they are incredibly supportive of me and my brother and sister. So that's they have uh, you know they're, they're hardworking. Um, they they care about things. They're missionary, and the uh, uh, and, and they're but they're supportive. I mean, my, my mom, you know, is the kind of mother who, you know, f- she's like, oh, anything I do is amazing. You know, it, it's like, uh, look, he made scrambled eggs. You know, <laughs> and, and they're not dry. You know, that kind of thing. You know, uh, so but that's a great to, to grow up in an environment like that is a gigantic lottery. I, I, to I spent all of my. Summers from maybe age four to 16 on my grandfather's ranch in South Texas, uh, and uh, learning all kinds of things that you can only learn in a rural environment. You know, rural people can be so self resourceful, they you don't, you don't necessarily you know, call a vet or you know, call somebody to fix the air conditioning when it breaks, you figure out how to fix it yourself, all of those things. And so it was really a great experience for me. I think my grandfather took me all those summers um, to give my mom a break because she was so young. But uh, for me, it was just and fabulous. We used that to watch too. Days of Our Lives together. The, in the hottest, my grandmother had died, and, and my grandfather was, had always watched Days of Our Lives with my grandmother, and he remained addicted to it. And um, And so during the hottest part of the day, uh, it came on at like 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and we would go back to the ranch house and watch Days of Our Lives, like sands through an hourglass. So are the Days of Our Lives. Amazing.
2: Uh, And uh, he also you developed a love of space. Yeah. And even in West Texas now, not probably too far from that ranch, you've been um, quite successful in the past month or so uh, shooting up things. Why?
0: Why space, why, are we, why is why it working are or this? why are we doing this? Um, so uh, I, first, it's important, I think, and I'll, I'll t- I can tell you why, but um, what, I, what I want to achieve with Blue Origin is to build the heavy lifting infrastructure that allows for the kind of dynamic entrepreneurial explosion of thousands of companies in space that I have witnessed over the last 21 years on the internet. So, it, when I think about the founding of Amazon.com, it, it only could work, so it take you back to 1995, July 1995, we opened our doors. And this is a 10 person company. I'm driving the packages to the post office myself. And we, had, we were sitting on a bunch of heavy lifting infrastructure Otherwise, a tiny company could never have started Amazon.com. You couldn't do it. For example, there was already a gigantic logistics network called the U.S. Postal Service and UPS and FedEx. That would have been tens of billions, actually hundreds of billions of dollars of capital that you would have had to have laid out if you had to build a logistics network. We didn't have to do that. It existed. That heavy lifting was already done. Um, the, the, The Internet itself was sitting on top of, at that time, Uh, uh, The long distance phone network, again, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of capital put in place for long distance phone calls, but repurposed for the internet. Um, Payment system, there was already a payment system. We didn't have to do that. It was called the credit card and it had been initially put in place for travelers Mm. and so on and so on. And you can go through. And what we were able to do is take all of that heavy lifting infrastructure and kind of reassemble it in a new way. And do something new and inventive with it, and that's one lens through which you can view the founding of Amazon.com. In space today, that is impossible. On the internet today, you know, two kids in their dorm room can reinvent an industry. That's how, how, uh, how it could, because you don't you, the heavy lifting infrastructure is in place for that. Today, two kids in their dorm room can't do anything interesting in space. You know, you could build a cubesat. There's not that much interesting about CubeSats. <laughs> and the, um, it'll, it, that may change, but right now, there's just, you, you need, there, there are certain laws of physics and certain things you need size for, and you, th- things need to be big. We need to be able to put big things in space at low cost. And so if I'm 80 years old and I can say to myself that Blue Origin did the heavy lifting, you know, I'm using my Amazon winnings, mm-hmm to do a new piece of heavy lifting infrastructure, um, uh, uh, which is low cost access to space. Vehicles have to be reusable. You can't throw them away. Throw away space vehicles every time, you're never going to lower the cost. So we're trying to lower the price of admission into space So that thousands of entrepreneurs can then do amazing, surprising things. Nobody in 1995 that much. Nobody in 95 predicted Snapchat. You know, it's like I can't predict for you what amazing entrepreneurs, brilliant, amazing entrepreneurs will do in space. But I know if I give them low-cost access to space, some brilliant, you know, 22-year-old is going to figure it out. It's one of those things about
2: what companies get sustainable. It's those that provide platforms upon which others can
0: build. If you you empower others, empower others to do things. So AWS is like that. Kindle Direct Publishing is like that. Our third-party selling business is like that. Fulfillment by Amazon is like that. Every time you Mm -hmm. figure out some way of providing tools and services that empower other people to deploy their creativity you're really on to something.
2: Let's turn up the lights and people come up to the mics and as they do, one final question. You got into the studio content creation business, Monster yeah. by the Sea. What's the whole point of that? Well, um, uh,
0: Manchester by the Manchester Sea. Manchester by the Sea. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, the, the content creation business is, we started this thing called Prime a long, long time ago now. And the founding benefit of Amazon Prime membership was fast, free delivery, and we started now quite a number of years ago. Adding uh, streaming videos to that, and we started with things like Gilligan's Island. You know, literally, it was there were ten or twenty thousand videos when we started, and they were all uh, kind of reruns. Uh, and but yeah, Days of Our Lives. I, hope. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. And we did have Star Trek, okay. um, the original series, and um, so we had a few things, and and. And people liked it, and so then we started licensing more expensive content, and people liked that. And then once we got to a certain scale level, it just made sense to start to create our own content. And what it allows us to do is to participate. And this is another of what I th- I think that uh, you know machine learning is a golden age. I think uh, space is about to enter a golden age, and I think that TV is about to enter a golden age. The 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 uh, may already be in the middle of one. You know, uh, we can. Do things uh, at Amazon Studios that a broadcast network would not be smart to do. So, for example, uh, Transparent, uh, which is an amazing show created by an amazing storyteller named Jill Soloway, could never be successful on a broadcast network. It's it, it, we, on a broadcast network. It, you can you, you can scale is important, and you can be like uh, everybody's third favorite show, and that will be successful. But on on streaming services like like Amazon Prime, you really want to be somebody's favorite show, and so it allows you to go to take more risk. It allows you to be a little gutsier. You do need people with great taste, and you know, like like Jill Soloway, to so it's not just random gutsiness. You know that won't get you anywhere.
2: Number one on the Vanity Fair establishment <laughs> list. Now we know why. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Jeff Bezos is the founder and CEO of Amazon. He created the aerospace company Blue Origin and owns the Washington Post. He spoke with Aspen Institute President and CEO Walter Isaacson. Next, Isaacson sits down with Steve Case and Glenn Hubbard at the Vanity Fair Summit. Their conversation is called When Bad Things Happen to Good Ideas. Hubbard is Dean of the Columbia Business School. Case co-founded AOL and now runs the investment firm Revolution. Vanity Fair puts out an annual new establishment list that recognizes Silicon Valley hotshots, Hollywood moguls, Wall Street titans, and cultural icons. Case was number one on the list in 2000. Walter Isaacson.
2: A long, long time ago when this first began and AOL and Time Warner merged, you were right, number get right one. You're getting right into it, aren't you? <laughs> you were number one on this list. It was. You yeah. beat uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Rupert. And then after you got the Time Warner merger together, you were off the list
3: totally. Whoa. Well, thank you for pointing that out, Walter. (laughs) Now, when I was coming in today, I did feel a little post traumatic stress. And I saw this picture backstage from uh, the Sun Valley Conference, I think it was 18, 19 years ago. Boy, I was was young back then and looked so innocent and idealistic. But no, it actually was after the merger (coughs) that uh, when we announced the merger, I was. Number one on the yeah, but then list. And the then merger. A year went later, down. I was off the list completely. So
2: what was it, it was like, by the way? Did you take to fall. drink or drugs, or did
3: <laughs> did people like me remember who you were? <laughs> well, people like you did, but most other people probably didn't. No, it was a, for me. it Actually, was an interesting journey because AOL, as you know, uh, having written about it. Uh, for the first decade when we started, we started in, you know, 1985 when only 3% of people were online, they are only online an hour a week. For the better part of a decade till the mid-90s, nobody knew or cared what we were doing. We were completely off the off the wavelength. And then in the late 90s, that five-year period, we went from a million customers to 25 million from a market cap of a billion dollars to 150 billion dollars. And so that was a pretty brief, you know, kind of uh, you know, period. So uh, it was, uh, I always took it a little bit in stride on the way up and therefore was able to kind of take it on the uh, way down get to the point of this panel
2: in some ways which is it was a good idea and bad things happen to a good idea what were the bad things that happened to the good idea Well, I
3: think the the lesson for me and actually it's a quote uh, from Thomas Edison from uh, over a hundred years ago vision without execution is hallucination. The idea of the merger, the idea of these assets coming together and converging, again, this was about 15, 16 years ago, so pre-YouTube, pre-Facebook, pre a lot of things, that you know, even Netflix was still a pretty small little, little, little player sending out you know, kind of you know, disks so the idea of these coming together which would give AOL a Path the broadband and time Warner a path into the digital world was was what made total sense uh, which is why companies like Disney and AT&T and Microsoft actually marched on Washington to try to block the merger they're worried that this company would would really control too much but the idea without the execution It doesn't get you very far. Ultimately, it came down to people, culture, frustrations, trust, and and some of the things I've worked on more recently, including trying to do things in a bipartisan way in in Washington, D.C. I think some of the lessons I learned watching that where it was clear, what, at least to me, clear what we should do, but getting people aligned around that, focused on that, working together and really setting the right priorities and with the right kind of teamwork and culture, that's where it it broke down. There were people, as you know, because you were there at the time. Uh, on the Time Warner site really didn't believe in the internet and and really didn't believe in in, in the potential for uh, for the internet and was worried about it. So when AOL was part of it, instead of investing in that saying now this company has this great asset with all these customers, there was a a sense of of kind of pulling back. So ultimately it was less about the idea, more about the execution, which ultimately is about people and trust and relationships and and making sure people are, are in sync. And you said you know what we should have done. If you could rewind the tape, what would you have done? Well, I think the idea, at least for, for, for me, and, and I think for other Jerry Levin and others, was these companies coming together and running it in a more integrated way, uh, leveraging these different assets, whether it be the you know, Time Warner Cable Broadband Systems their AOL Digital Platform or uh, you know, Time and Content or HBO or, or Warner Brothers, you, know, you, you could kind of, uh, name it. Uh, if you ran it in a more integrated way, thinking of it as one company as opposed to, as you know, really a lot of independent, kind of more of a holding company structure, that would have enabled a lot of great things to happen. They chose not to do that, uh, and it was it was a frustrating thing for uh, for everybody. And even the Vanity Fair, in retrospect, the p- saying I should be number one was was pr- probably a mistake. Not just because the merger didn't happen, but because I actually wasn't the CEO of the company. As part of the deal, I agreed to step aside. Even AOL no longer reported me, so I was the only chairman of the uh, of the company. So to me, it was a, a tough lesson, and, and sort of a some ways as I talked about in my my uh, my book recently, sort of a searing kind of experience. But the the takeaway from it was ultimately it comes down to you know, to people and some of the things that, you know, Glenn's been involved in and on the policy side and, and, and now we're in even this, this election season, hopefully once the dust settles and, and you know, we, people, you people know, come back to Washington in, in January, they can work together. And I think it's going to require more of that, more relationships, more trust to, to, to deal with some of the challenges we have. Glenn, uh, you were
2: part of one of the great uh, brand enterprises, which was Bush family politics. Uh, since Prescott Bush all all the way down. What went wrong to that idea, and why did Jeb Bush have such problems?
4: Well, you know, Walter, I think if Jeb Bush were on the ballot right now, we'd have had a whole different level of discussion in the country, and I think he'd probably be the next president. So what went wrong? I don't think it's as much about ideas, because we're not even talking about ideas in the campaign at the moment. I think it's about not understanding where the party and the country were. A lot of people have been left behind. It is not a figment of their imagination. It is actually true. And I think on the left and the right, elites were having their own policy discussions without uh, really tapping into that. Trump did. And I think that where Jeb went astray a little bit is not connecting. Now, the policies he was uh, offering, frankly, would have been a whole lot better than what the two candidates now are offering, but he didn't connect. And I think that's what was missing.
2: And with the Republican brand as an enterprise, almost putting on your dean of business school hat, if Trump were to lose, what should the Republican Party do?
4: Well, I think the Republican Party has to figure out, you know, to use econ speak a little bit, who the median voter is. You know, what, which group are you trying to represent? And the populism part of the party, there's a small government part of the party, there's a centrist let's govern part of the party that Steve was talking about. We've got got to decide. I actually think some of the populism is good. These are real problems. And I think a good conservative leader who taps into that in a way that has real answers will be the next head of the party.
2: You, for the first time I've known you, I've always not quite known your politics, came out strongly and endorsed Hillary Clinton and have been working for her. Why did you do that, and do you think it's possible to do what you just mentioned, which is have people work together with trust?
3: Well, I think we have to we have people work together? I think they're, they're the biggest risk to this country is we lose our edge as the most innovative entrepreneurial nation, and the biggest risk in terms of making that Know, that possibility you know, that happened is the dysfunction we have in government. That, that is not dealing with issues around capital incentives, not dealing with immigration, not dealing with some of the regulatory issues that are going to be happening in this you know, third wave of, uh, of, of innovation. So I think it's critical that we figure out some way to, you know, to come together. And I think there are a lot of people on both sides who want to do that. It's how do you figure that path forward and how do you create a relationship where there is, there is trust and people can come come together recognizing they'll, on both sides there'll be Hacked, but there is enough common ground and enough of a need to move the country forward they do it in terms of your question I have tried to stay out of politics for, for three decades I've I have worked in a in a you know kind of nonpartisan or at least bipartisan way trying to be kind of a bridge builder on some of the issues I care about the early days of the internet you know more recently innovation entrepreneurship kinds of issues I just decided you know this year it was a pivotal election I I, I understand that and Donald Trump has business experience, is more entrepreneurial, so in some ways it'd be a more natural person to, you know, to back. But the reality is there's no there there in terms of his policies around the economy, around technology, around innovation. And Hillary Clinton, who I've known for, you know, 20-plus years, has laid out a very specific kind of you know, set of proposals to try to move the country forward. So ultimately, to me, it became, is it, is it a, it's an election where one candidate is talking about the future, the other candidate, for the most part, is talking about the past. I've always want to err on the side of the future and lean into the future. So I decided to make an exception this year and and, and, and support her because I think she is the right person uh, of the two candidates to to move forward and deal with some of the challenges which are significant because we're now seeing the globalization of capital, the globalization of entrepreneurship, and there's a real risk that we're getting complacent as as a nation and could lose our edge could lose our lead. So it really is not just about this election, it's really about the yeah, I think the future of the country. Yeah,
4: if I could jump in on this, I, I think a lot of what has people frustrated is the idea that Washington has failed them. And I don't mean failing them in not adopting policy A or B, but not getting anything done, that people just can't come together. I honestly believe if Mrs. Clinton does win, she could sit down with Paul Ryan in the House of Representatives and work out a deal on taxes, on infrastructure, on work support, this really should be possible. And I think that's what the American people are really looking for, whether it's Mr. Trump or or Mrs. Clinton. And And she
3: did. She uh, she did. The other piece, for the most part, it was my uh, belief that on the economy, on innovation, she was better. I also had some concerns, as others did, about the Trump temperament character, judgment kind of issues, but also I, I respected the fact that when Hillary Clinton was in the Senate, she did work together and to really understand the issues in, in a deep way and did work very hard on, on bipartisan kind of compromises and, and the bills she introduced were, always had you know, support from, from the other side. So that mentality is there. She just needs to reach reach out to the other side. Paul Ryan and others need to figure out some way to, to come together. Knowing people on both sides will be critical. You know, the the, the you know the, the one camp will say, you know, don't don't, Move to the center on you know, both both sides, but they need to start dealing with these issues. Otherwise, we are going to we're already losing the global battle for talent because of this, you know, inability to deal with immigration uh, reform. And and you know, I think that this country really it, it's at risk, and the next decade really is 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 critical.
1: This is Aspen Ideas to Go. You are listening to a conversation featuring Steve Case, Glenn Hubbard, and Walter Isaacson from the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit in October 2016. Another episode you should check out, War Reporting, Novel Writing, and How to Tell a Great Story, featuring writers Geraldine Brooks and Tony Horwitz. You can find it on iTunes by searching Aspen Ideas To Go. Now, back to the conversation.
2: And in your new book, The Third Wave, you talk about the disruptions that will happen in that next decade what do you think those disruptions will be and what policies do you think the government needs to do to deal with them?
3: Well, two things. First of all, just in terms of setting it up, the, the, the way I thought of it, the first wave was really talk, talking to the internet. The first wave was getting everybody connected, going from a world where nobody knew about it or cared about it to suddenly everybody was connected and couldn't live without it. And that was 85 to 2000, companies like AOL, but many, many others, Cisco and Microsoft and Yahoo and, and so forth were key companies in the first wave, which then set off the second wave, which has been the last 15 years or so, which has basically been apps, software, services, writing on top of the internet. So Google and Facebook and Twitter and, and, and so forth. Basically about lean startups, often dorm room startups, that created an interesting app that spread virally and created these kind of overnight successes in many, in many uh, sectors. The third wave, I think it takes it to the next level, really integrating the internet in seamless and pervasive ways, sometimes even invisible ways, uh, throughout our lives and the process really change in pretty fundamental ways, healthcare, education, agriculture and food financial services you know transportation energy government services pretty important stuff pretty big parts of the economy that have changed a little bit in the first wave and the second wave but not a lot but it's going to require a different mindset i think from entrepreneurs, more focused on partnerships. You can't go it alone. More focused on policy. These are regulate, regulated industries. Uh, more of a bias towards perseverance because there, there are going to be fewer overnight successes. There are going to be more like the AOL tenure in the making overnight success. And it's going to require government engaging and figuring out what the right path is on regulation, what the right incentives are on investment. How do you deal with the issue around uh, immigration? There's a bunch of different issues that need to be in place, or, you know, on both on the policy side and on the innovation side. And it needs to be much much more of a bridge between the policymakers and the innovators, and also more of a bridge between the small startups and the large Fortune 500 companies, because partnerships are going to be much, much more important in the third wave than they were in the second. So It's, it's a big opportunity, but it's also a, a big challenge, both for the innovators, for the big companies, and, and the government itself.
4: Yeah, I'm very optimistic, Walter, on the pace of innovation. What concerns me more is the policy environment around innovation. I worry that Washington doesn't move at the pace that people out here move. And the question is, will we have an understanding and uh, a pro-innovation attitude, or are we gonna try to favor incumbents or use regulatory burdens uh, in the way? That, that's what worries me. So how do you teach that at Columbia, this
2: notion of being an entrepreneur, being able to fail, as our panel is supposed to be talking about, uh, and be part of a next wave rather than just an institutional protecting the established institution wave?
4: Well, first, as a Columbia Dean, let me note that, War- that Wharton is Donald Trump's school, so let me just sort <laughs> put of that, put that out there. Uh, what, what we do, most of our students are interested in entrepreneurship, either being an entrepreneur or wanting to be in a startup. So we have a lot on how to think disruptively. I think most top business schools today are doing that. I'm not worried about young people's attitudes. I'm not worried about the future of innovation. I'm just worried. Do we have the policy environment, whether it's immigration, tax, financial regulation, that allows these people to succeed?
2: And uh, do you think that we've become overregulated that stops the growth of entrepreneurship? It, uh, well, Give me some examples. Nothing of
4: stops it, but it, for example, Close. we have uh, really low interest rates in the country, so it's tempting to say, "Well, the cost of money must be cheap for business." That's absolutely true. If you're a cash-rich mature company, it is absolutely false if you're an entrepreneur. And so we do have a situation where financial regulation is advantaging incumbents relative to startups. We don't have a supportive tax policy. We haven't been as supportive of basic research as a country as we should. So I think there are things we could do to to be better. I don't think we ought to be in the business of picking winners. What the heck does government know about that? But it can have a neutral environment that helps people. What about
2: taking large established companies some of which are relatively new, like Amazon is one of those, and making sure that they retain an innovative edge. I mean, you talked a lot about startups and entrepreneurship, but isn't really the next layer getting into sustained innovation for sure. big enterprise?
3: And, and, and as the companies scale, it gets harder. It's it harder to be as agile and nimble and you know, move things around. You end up being instead of this little speedboat, more of an aircraft carrier. Companies like Amazon have, have done a great job of that. Apple's done a great job of that. Google's done a great job of that in terms of you know, tech companies. And there are a lot of companies. You'll hear from uh, Beth Comstock and, uh, and later this afternoon, GE, a 100-year-old plus company is trying to reinvent itself, even move their headquarters from suburban to downtown Boston to be closer to entrepreneurs, bump into more, more people and ideas. But I think the opportunity for these big companies, who for the most part watched the second wave with curiosity, but it wasn't really impacting them, the third wave there is more of a threat but also more of an opportunity and you're starting to see a lot of those bigger fortune 500 companies playing offense trying to figure out how to partner with entrepreneurs recognize that of course they're trying to innovate within the company but there's more smart people working for somebody else and, and a lot of ideas outside their company how do you connect to that and almost build a network around your company an API if you will around your company and the small companies recognize in these sectors education healthcare, partnering with these big guys actually can accelerate their growth so there's much more of a a desire on both parts, a need on both parts, to, to drive partnerships. So that's what's going to allow some of these Fortune 500 companies to be nimble. At the same time, the data is pretty compelling. It, you know, over half of the Fortune 500 companies turn over every 25 years. There is a churning process, which is, for the most part, a healthy process, but if you want to be on the list 25 years from now, it's not just about what you do within the company, it's how you connect to other innovators around the company.
2: Pick up on that. What will cause Fortune 500 companies? To fail in the next 25 years and which ones do you think might fail?
4: Well, right now we've got a policy environment that's sustaining a lot of weak firms with very low interest rates. There are firms in the financial sector that would be in trouble if we were in a more normal policy environment. But I think the failure of a bunch of firms over time is, as Steve says, a sign of a healthy economy.
2: What, what are the common features they have if they fail?
4: Generally, it's not seeing the world change. When, when you don't have a burning platform, it's very hard to innovate. For every large company CEO who says, you know, I've got the company really focused on innovation. That's really hard to do in a successful company. A lot of innovation comes from outside, and it's bought, and it's acquired because of incentive problems. So, you know, it, it's, it's natural to see that. And it will be natural that some of today's mid-sized companies or tomorrow's large companies, we should encourage that. hmm
2: You've been uh, traveling on your Rise of the Rest right. bus tour. In fact, you got a Mardi Gras crown when you I came. I remember that <laughs> I was great in New Orleans. <laughs> Pretty good. You liked being a king, I think. It was know, good, yeah. Day. You were very good at it. But what is happening now to cities that aren't Silicon Valley, aren't Boston, New York? What's causing some to rise and some to fail?
3: Well, first of all, it's, you know, particularly sitting in, in Silicon Valley or the, this region, you know, the Silicon Valley will continue to be the pride of America and the envy of the world. There's a lot of great things happening here, as well as New York City and Boston and other places. At the same time, uh, it's wrong in my opinion that 75% of venture capital goes to just three states, California, New York, and Massachusetts, 75%. The other 47 states get 25%. And so what we're trying to do with this Rise of the Rest initiative is level the playing field so every entrepreneur everywhere has a shot at the American Dream, and every community in the country has the opportunity for some of these breakout companies to create the jobs, which create the opportunity that lift up these, these cities. So that's the main reason to do it. We visited now 26 cities on, with, our, with these bus tours just a couple weeks ago, in Nebraska and New Mexico and Arizona, Utah, you know, Colorado, and there are great companies being built here, but the stories aren't being told uh, of both the companies and, and the cities. In terms in terms of the, the question, it requires uh, a, a culture change in many of these places. One of the great things about Silicon Valley is sort of its fearlessness. Anything is possible. There are parts of the country that are more cautious and risk-averse. How do you create that culture around risk-taking? How do you create more ne- density in terms of collaboration? Sometimes physical spaces help do that. How do you get more capital off the sideline? There's often wealth in those cities, but it's not really focused on startups, so creating more angel networks. How do you create uh, an environment where talent wants to stay there or move back there? There's been a brain drain in the past couple decades. A lot of people in the middle of the country felt they had to be in California or New York if they wanted to do something in the tech world. That's beginning to change. How do you get people graduating from Arizona State University or, or other places to stay where they are? And how do you get some people, the boomerang of talent to 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 move back, so there's a bunch of plays that are are clear uh, that the cities have to run to to emerge as stronger startup communities, and it's happening. The rest is rising. It's gonna accelerate in this third wave, in part because 75% of the Fortune 500 companies are in the middle of the country, and if partnerships are more important, as I believe they will be in the third wave, and will advantage the startups that are closer to those companies.
4: One partnership that I think is incredibly important is universities in the business community. So the cities you mentioned have very close ties between the finest universities that are there in business. That should be happening all over the country, and that's a natural. But you do notice
2: that even in, we are talking about Mississippi, the only town in the Delta country and around there of Mississippi that's still thriving is Oxford because it has a university. university. We're about to go to Q&A, but let me just put a point on something you said, which is you want to make sure everybody has the opportunity and that venture capital right. goes to these coasts. What percent of venture capital
3: goes to African-Americans? 1%. And, and uh, the, the issue of inclusiveness and trying to level the playing field is partly about place, but also about people. You know, the data is actually quite troubling. 1% Americans, 1% to Latinos, only 10% to women. 90% of venture capital last year went to men. So it, it's how do you create this opportunity, which is a fairness moral thing to do, but also is an economic thing to do. How do you get everybody who has an idea on the playing field with those ideas? Some of them are going to break out and be the next Googles or Under Armors or Chipotles or, or what have you, but right now it's, it's that playing field is, 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 is not level. One other point on, on the issue of the rise of the rest, you know, examples of what's happening too in particular, Uber, which of course is one of the most iconic Silicon Valley companies, is basically betting its future on Pittsburgh. They have 500 engineers now, they pulled out of Carnegie Mellon. Their driverless car operation, round zero for that is Pittsburgh. They have cars on the road right now in Pittsburgh. So it's interesting the company started in Silicon Valley is basically saying its future is in Pittsburgh. And the other one is Magic Leap, a company that raised $1.3 billion of capital, including from Google in Silicon Valley, Alibaba in China, and in the, in the AR, you know, kind of VR space. And where are they? Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Mm-hmm. so this is happening we're just trying to promote the these stories and promote these cities and try to level the playing field so the american dream really is available to everybody everywhere
2: we uh questions please or step up to the plate if you would uh anybody uh there uh while we're waiting uh, would you pick up on the equity and fairness issue
4: for venture capital
2: and for people who want to be entrepreneurs why Is there so much of a divide in opportunity in this country? Well,
4: I think there's two kinds of divides in opportunity. One is about access to capital for entrepreneurship. But an even more basic one is the divide in work and opportunity. For everybody in this room, the number of people looking out for you, wanting you to work in their firms or organizations is high. There's a lot of talent in America that doesn't have that opportunity. And that's a story about better education, better training, better support for work, and we're just not doing
3: it and that ties in with the earlier discussion about the Clinton-Trump decision, is I, although I obviously said I support Clinton, I do understand what's driving a lot of the Trump support. There are a lot of people that are frustrated, scared, fearful, feel left out, kind of left behind by globalization, digitalization, and are really concerned about their future. They're mad, and we're seeing that manifest. So the question is, I don't think if you're mad that Trump is the answer, but I think how do we as a society create more of the sense of possibility, create more of this opportunity, not just in place like Silicon Valley, Uh, which, you know, where there's a growing kind of income inequality kind of gap, but all across the country, when people see that our jobs are being created in Detroit and Pittsburgh and Kansas City and St. Louis and and some of these other places and feel like the playing field is level and everybody has a fair shot, I think that can change some of that dynamic. But there are a lot of people very angry, very frustrated. I understand And Keep in mind that a
4: lot of the big entrepreneurial businesses today aren't really creating that many jobs. Mm -hmm. and If you look at the example of George Eastman and Kodak and then compare it to Snapchat, mm, very different job creation.
2: Yeah, but a place like Rochester, which is where he built his firm, is suddenly coming back. Why is that?
4: Well, because you do have an infrastructure. You have a university. You had a science-based community. You had Xerox there, Kodak.
2: And yet there's still the frustration you talked about. If I may oversimplify your economic views that I've read you, You've generally been in favor of free trade. You've generally been in favor of a comprehensive immigration. You've generally been in favor of technology as being a driver of advancement. Does the rebellion that's happened in the past few years and led to Trump made you rethink any of that?
4: No, but what it has made me think is we haven't done enough as a country for people who've been left behind. We just haven't. On the right, people say, well, we don't want to spend the money for the kind of education, training, work support. On the left, people would rather put folks on the dole but nobody's doing anything in the middle. Mm-hmm.
3: No, it's, it's totally right, and I, I think we have to be careful, particularly in play audiences like this, the Vanity Fair conference in San Francisco, uh, not yeah. to believe, you know, that the way we see things is the way everybody else sees things. And, you know, I think spending all this time traveling around about I think it's about five, 6,000 miles on a bus and seeing different parts of America, uh, yeah, I see this firsthand. They, 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 as I said, there are a lot of people uh, you know, who are feeling left out because, to a large extent, they have been left out, and, they, and, it's, and there is a need for more job training. But the, the, the optimism and the entrepreneurs are always optimistic. I just keep reminding myself that 200 years ago, 90% of us worked on farms. Now it's 2%. 88% didn't lose jobs. We created new jobs. We created this industrial revolution. We created this technology revolution. What's the next revolution, which I think is going to tie in with some of these third wave sectors, and how do we do that in a more dispersed way so opportunity comes to all these cities, not just San Francisco, New York, Boston. When you
2: say, what's the next revolution, you've talked about a couple things that still need to be disruptive, whether it's finance, healthcare, whatever. Give me something more specific that you think might
3: be the next big thing. Well, I think I think it's going to be a big thing in all these different sectors. I think, and one of the things that doesn't get as much attention, but I think, is going to be huge, is the food industry. It's five trillion dollar industry and for a venture capital the total addressable market TAM, one hundred percent. We all eat, and this country, by the way, we don't eat three times a day. We apparently eat four point seven times a day, which is its own <laughs> its own issue. Uh, and the, most of the brands are, are you know things we grew up with, they're half century old. You know, most of them are you know kind of with a model around more industrialized kind of processed approaches. So you know the challenges. Sort of the big food companies and some of the fast food companies like, like McDonald's are going to intensify in the next decade. You're going to have a whole new generation of, of brands that emerge that are really kind of leading the way. We're going to see similar things in other sectors, financial services. There's a lot of discussion in, in Washington about the too big to fail banks. I, I, if I was running a bank, I'd be worried about too big to innovate because there's now thousands of fintech startups all over the country indeed all over the world that are chipping away at different parts of that conglomerate uh, franchise. So I think this dynamic is going to cut across healthcare, education, all these sectors, which by the way, if you add them all up, it's more than half of the economy that hasn't really been disrupted yet, but's up for grabs in this third wave. And that's why the innovators, the entrepreneurs who figure this out, figure out the partnerships, figure out the policy, and provided we as a country get the right kind of policy kind of framework in place, you know, this next wave could be the biggest wave of all. So what's the next big thing?
4: Well, I I agree with Steve. Almost every industry is ripe for disruption. Where I am in New York, the fintech revolution is huge. My own sector and education is going to be massively disrupted. The question for policy is whether we have the right environment for an innovation. Abraham Lincoln once told a story of a steam engine in Alexandria in ancient times. Mm -hmm. But nobody had a policy of how to make money on anything. So it's later James Watt. So policy
2: matters, not just ideas. And the final question is, what do you think will next fail? What do you think will be off the list? Company, now, just going to be blown away? What
4: I'm most worried about is a failure of public trust Mm -hmm. in in institutions. Uh, that, That worries me the most in terms of companies. You know, as I told you, a more normal financial environment is gonna expose some things. My graduate Warren Buffett always says, you, know, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out, yeah. so we'll, we'll find out.
3: No, I, th- I think, as I said, you know, half the Fortune 500 will turn over. It might even be more than half in this next 25 years. It, it could very well accelerate. And what people are now realizing is this disruption of technology, of the internet, of software, is not just a tech phenomenon. In some ways, every company is now a tech company, and some of these more traditional sectors that thought they had moats, even, even you know, Warren I had dinner with a few weeks ago when I was in uh, you know, Omaha. Some of the his perspective on, on, on industry sectors with moats, those moats are coming down, and even in the, shaving shaving business he was a big believer in, in that Gillette and others had these these moats well Dollar Shave Club basically came out with something got a lot of traction relatively quickly Unilever said we better buy this and now it, it's a, a signal to a lot of sectors in a lot of these big fortune 500 companies that game on you know this third wave is yeah. is breaking and 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 it'd be you better figure out a way to lean in the future or you're gonna be left behind Steve Case Glenn Hubbard thank you all very thank much you. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you.
1: Steve Case co-founded AOL and now runs the investment firm Revolution. Glenn Hubbard is dean of the Columbia Business School. They spoke with Aspen Institute president and CEO Walter Isaacson. Their discussion was part of the Vanity Fair New Establishment Summit. It was produced in association with the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Our Public Programs. Thanks for joining me.